Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 5 is where we are this morning in our journey through Romans, beginning the fifth chapter. And in January, we started out in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and, and I feel like we have been climbing a mountain. And in a sense, really, Romans is one of the great mountain peaks of, of all the Scripture. And up to this point, we've been climbing a mountain of truth and doctrine and theology and the gospel. And, and here in Romans 5, it's as if we have a little ledge that we can rest on for a, a, f- a few moments, in particular verses 1 through 11. And then in, chapter, uh, in verse 12 of Romans 5, we're going to start the climb back up again. But for the next couple weeks, we're going to rest in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Today, I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. And in particular, we're going to zero in on on verses 1 and 2, where Paul gives us these three implications of all this truth that we've been climbing to understand for the past few few weeks. So let me me read Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and what he would say to us this morning. And and as we were singing this morning, before I pray, it dawned on me. We sang this song where we we proclaim together through lyric that, that God will take us through the fiercest storm, and clearly that's true. Sometimes, though, I think immediately we think of the storm as being external. Maybe for many of us this morning, the storm is internal. Maybe it's some sin or some habit or something that just cannot, you just cannot get past. And I pray today that the truths that we dwell on this morning would would encourage us to fight the good fight of faith internally and externally. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we think about this text, as we consider it, we pray for your grace and your Holy Spirit to help us understand. Thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit that inspired men through the centuries to write it down, to be exactly what you intended to be for us. It's breathed out by you. It has your authority. It's without air. And we humble ourselves underneath your word this morning. Lord, as we gather in this room this morning, we we understand that we are gathering with your church all across the world, all across this nation, even in this city. We thank you for Bible-believing churches in our city, and we pray, Lord, that they would increase, that there would be more of them. 
Lord, I pray for Greater Bellwood Baptist Church this morning and, and Pastor Adrian Chester. I pray for your grace to that congregation as he preaches your word. I pray that the Bible would be central and the gospel would be clear and you'd help to form that church into the image of Christ more and more as a result of their gathering today. Fathers, I, as I think about my, my brother, Pastor Chester, I, I think about the African-American church in our city or churches that are primarily made up of African-American people. I pray for your grace to them, that they would be centered on Christ and that it would grow in their love for him. I think about the Korean Presbyterian church just down the road, and I pray for your grace to them, that they would be more like Jesus as a result of their time together. I think about Nuevo Impacto, the church that is primarily made up of Latin American believers, and I pray for your grace to them. And Lord, we, as we gather in this room this morning, we pray the same things for us, and we long for that day when people from every tribe and tongue and nation, when our blackness and whiteness and brownness falls away, and we will be one in Christ Jesus and Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a kind of foretaste of that here in our own congregation and in our own gathering and that you, through us becoming more and more like the nations here at Crosspoint, that it would cause us to long for that day when we are one around your throne, enjoying you forever and ever. Lord, what a privilege it is to open your word May it not be mundane or rote or dry, but may you shake us and encourage us. And some of us need conviction and some of us need encouragement. Lord, there are a thousand things that need to happen this morning in this room that we're not even aware of, even in our own hearts. But we confess our dependence on you to do what only you can do. Bring the dead to life and bring the weak to strength and bring the comfortable to mission and do all these things for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5 verse 1 starts with this word, therefore. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher in London back in the mid-1900s, said, I don't have it on the screen, I just want to read it to you, just a few sentences, that he says about this word, therefore, he says, I sometimes think that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. The Christian life is in many ways a matter of logic, a matter of deduction. Christians who have shined most brightly throughout the centuries have always been those who have been able to use this word therefore. And so this word therefore that Paul starts Romans chapter 5 with is a kind of transition from all of the doctrine that we've been, been looking at in Romans 1 through 4, where Paul starts talking about how all people are dead in their sins, and that the only hope that people would have to be made alive is that God would put his son, Jesus, forward to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us, and then that he would give dead hearts the gift of faith so that they would be saved, they would be made right, they would be, and here's this really important word, that they would be justified by faith, it's a gift from God, in Christ 
who lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we should have lived, and rose victoriously over sin, death, and the grave, so that all those of us who are trusting in Jesus can be reunited with our holy creator God. And now in chapter 5, Paul is giving us a little breather here, and he's saying, in light of that, therefore, these are some results, some, some fruit, some, some things that should be true in the life of a Christian. This is, this is the reality for those who are trusting in, in Christ. Therefore, it's a logical deduction. You know, it's like, and I've said it before, those of you that grew up in the 70s, Schoolhouse Rock, therefore, it's a conjunction, conjunction, junction. What's your function? So let's, let's get into it. I think that Paul just lays out for you. There's no, there's no rocket science here. Paul just tells us what our three points are in verses 1 through 2. The first is this. The first result of justification by faith in Christ alone is this. That one, we have peace with God through Jesus. That comes straight from the text. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, remember that faith is a gift that God gives dead people, makes them alive, so that they can see and trust in what Jesus has done. As a result of that, because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just think briefly about this word peace. I confess that naturally, when I hear the word peace, I tend to think of something kind of more subjective, kind of like a, a feeling. But what's in view here is not a mere subjective feeling, but an objective reality. It's not, Paul saying here, that we have the peace of God, which is a very real reality. Real reality is a little redundant, but you get the point that I'm trying to make there. Philippians 4, I think it's probably a verse, I think it's verse 7 somewhere in there, that comes to our mind when we think about the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that's a very real and important thing. And of course, God gives that to those who he has regenerated and made his own. But that's not what's in view here. Because of the faith that God has given us that we have trusted in Christ with, what's in view here in Romans chapter 5 is peace with God. It means that we who were once at war with God because of our rebellious nature, now hostilities have ceased. We who were enemies of God are now reconciled to God. And Paul, not wanting us to forget how that peace happens, he just throws on, of course, this tagline that is all throughout the scriptures, all throughout Paul's letters, through Jesus Christ our Lord, lest we forget that it's just a kind of peace that's somehow ambiguously accomplished. No, it's, it's through Jesus. And just this morning to start off our worship, Kwame read from Exodus chapter 15. And it's this picture of the, the waters of the Red Sea crashing in on Pharaoh's army as God rescued his people, the Israelites, from Egyptian captivity. And that's a, that's a kind of picture of salvation in the Old Testament. It was physical salvation for the Jewish slaves that he was wrenching from Egyptian captivity. But it's a kind of spiritual picture of how anybody comes to peace with God. We were captives. We were slaves. We were enemies of God. And he rescues us by pouring the 
waters of his wrath, not on us, but on Jesus. So the reason that we can even have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. I know you know this, most of you, but Paul is reminding us of this, that the reason that we can sleep at night and our hearts can trust and be secure in him is because we have peace with God through Jesus. May, may, may we just never get over this. May we never let this gospel become sort of mundane to us. If, if you're a Christian, this should cause you to worship afresh. This is what we call gospel centrality. We, you, you've probably noticed that if you've been here for more than a few weeks, we, 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 we kind of get to that point at every single gathering, don't we? Have you noticed that? I, ho- I hope you do. If you don't notice it, then, well, um, either we're not communicating clearly or, or maybe you're not listening. <laughs> Paul comes back again and again to this point that we, we have peace with Christ. Friends, if you are a Christian, this means the implication of this is that we were enemies with God by nature, but God has made peace through his son Jesus Christ. That means that salvation at its core is not self-improvement. It's not steps to become a better you, although the Christian life and the Bible is full of exhortations that encourage and exhort us on how to become more and more like Christ. But at its core, at the central foundation of the message of the Bible, the message of redemption, and the message of the gospel is that God has rescued us. He's turned his enemies into friends through his Son. And that's why we come and worship every Sunday morning. And that's why we get up to each day trusting that God has made us right with him. That's the most important thing about any person that is in Christ is that God has made peace with himself through, with, between you and him through Jesus. But, 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 but we, we often are lulled to sleep and we are so prone to treat salvation like it's God rescuing us from a bad day or a less than optimal existence. Nothing could be further from the truth. If we boil salvation down to mere pragmatic tips to living, we lose the gospel, we lose the wonder, we don't worship, and strangely, our gatherings become kind of about us and not about Christ and his glory. And Paul says we have peace with God through Jesus. Two, secondly, what does he say right after that? Verse two, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the second thing clearly that he tells us there is we have access into this grace in which we stand. Now what's, what's really interesting here about this sentence in verse two and this second result of our justification that Paul outlines for us in these first two verses is that typically when we think about grace, don't we think about like a thing? It's something that God gives us, which is clearly true. But really when we think about grace, we should more think about the person and work of Christ. He is our grace. He is the one who's, who's bringing grace to us. But here in verse, in, in, in verse 2, the second point is this grace in Paul's logic here is actually a, a place. It's a realm. It's a place that we 
stand in after God has brought us into it. So think about Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is, this is such a beautiful scripture. When my brother, uh, 20, 1989, when my brother was witnessing, how many years ago is that? 28 years ago when I was a senior in high school and my brother was witnessing to me and he had become a Christian and he was telling me about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 was one of the first chapters in the Bible I read. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, was one of the first verses that I read that God just opened my mind to. And listen to this, listen to what Paul is saying in this letter to this other church. He, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here in Colossians 1 is this similar idea that God is, he's picked us up, he's taken us out of Egypt, and he's put us into salvation. He's crossed us through the floodwaters of his wrath, and he's put us in a place, and that's what Paul is picking up here as a result of justification. It's not just that we are justified, but it's now that we are part of a kingdom. In Romans chapter 8, we'll learn about the doctrine of adoption, that we aren't just justified, but we are now adopted into God's family, and it's a status, it's a location, it's a place. And that's true of every Christian, it's a place that we live with God. What are the implications of this? It's it, once God has transferred you into his kingdom, truly, it's a place where you can be assured that he will keep you. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to start reading in, in verse 7. John chapter 10 and verse 7. Jesus says this, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's this sense that salvation opens us up to a a, a, a space to graze in and to grow in that, that we are once enslaved and now we're actually free. And contrast that actually with how our sinful, broken, demonic culture pictures the Christian life. Maybe you grew up in a church culture that was sort of legalistic or binding and uh, maybe a little authoritarian. And, and, and subconsciously you have this picture of the Christian life as, uh, you know, the world is sort of free but now if I really trust in Christ, it's going to be kind of like tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, and, you know, it's like a, like a straitjacket spiritually. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is getting at here. True joy can only be found in God's pasture. Verse 10, the thief, comes not, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, he says in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And he's still doing that through us, through the ministry of the local church. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Then down to verse 25, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one who is able to snatch them out of, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So that means that this This grace that we stand in is a secure place. Now here's the challenge of preaching this great truth and teaching and thinking about this great truth of assurance. That grace isn't just an object that just kind of hits us and then we're, you know, it's up to us to wander around and do what we want to do. But grace is this thing, this reality, this realm, this kingdom that we stand in. Here's the, here's the challenge of thinking about this and teaching it and preaching it and applying it to our lives. There are, there are some people in this room who, who have real tender consciences. And they're always kind of wondering whether or not they're right with God. And they're actually very spiritual and sensitive people. And they actually, when they hear the warnings of Scripture and they hear the, the commands of Scripture, they, they are inclined to think, oh no, what if I'm not truly born again? What if, what if I'm not truly in God's pasture? What if, what if, and, and they need, you need assurance and encouragement. You need, you need to, be, to, be, to be graciously cared for. But then there are people in this room who, and I think this is, this is rather common in our culture, who are falsely secure. They, they, they've got a kind of mental, cognitive notion of the gospel. Their lives do not match up with what they say. Of course, nobody's perfect. They are, they are self-deceived in their right standing with God. They're not actually standing in grace. They're just observing it from afar, thinking that it's theirs. And they need to hear this, and they need to be convicted and pressed on, and they need to be crushed so that they would finally let go of themselves and, and run to the true shepherd. Which one are you? Which, which one are, are you? Some of you need to be encouraged and some of you need to be exhorted and admonished. And, and the great truth is, is that when we are trusting in Christ, we have access into this place of grace. And it's there that we can rest and stand and fight. Which brings us to this third and final truth from our text. At the end of verse 2. It says that we, after we have peace with God, we have access by faith into this grace, and then the second half of verse 2, we now can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Now this word glory is, is such a fascinating word, such a wonderfully rich biblical word and concept. Whenever I think deeply about the word glory, I think I've told you this story before, but it reminds me of years ago uh, when we came back to Columbus after the Army and Jennifer's medical training, and I was on staff at another church, and I was just kind of learning how to preach and cutting my teeth, and um, there was this old gentleman in the congregation who his ministry was a ministry of mercy and encouragement to a young, weak, stammering preacher, which was me. And any time that I, he just, he just had a, a ministry of like discernment that he knew that when I was struggling, he would just sit in the back of the congregation and he would just sort of shout out the word, glory. <laughs> and it, there were so many things embedded in just the way he would say it. It was like he was saying, it's okay, you know, they're going to forget about this horrible sermon pretty soon anyway, so just keep pressing on. <laughs> It was sort of his way of acknowledging, I know you're struggling, keep going. And also, it just, it just served to sort of reorient my eyes away from myself and to the Lord. This word glory is so rich. In the Old Testament, what Paul is saying here is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, so what does this word glory mean in this sense? Well, we could take literally days to exhaust. We could never exhaust all that Scripture has to say about the glory of God, but just a few thoughts to orient us, to then grab a hold of this and apply this to our lives. The word glory in the Old Testament, in the original language, is this word kabod, and it means weight or heaviness, the gravity of God's presence amongst His people. It's His worthiness so when God's glory would come upon his people, it would be a kind of heavy holiness, not in the sense of like a, like a wet blanket where everybody's depressed, but in the sense that when, when the God of all creation is amongst his people, there's a clear sense that God is here and he becomes the, the central thing there in the presence of his people. We see this in in Exodus 33, that I won't take the time to read, but we see Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he comes down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments. He comes down to these people that are worshiping golden calves, and Moses is like, ah, what am I going to do? And God says, get up from here and go to the land that I have given you. And Moses says, I, I'm not going to go unless you go with us. Lord, he says, show me your glory in Exodus chapter 33. And God says to him, of course, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. But before I can show you my glory, you can only really just get a glimpse of it because it is so majestic. In fact, I'm going to hide you behind a cleft of a rock, and you're just going to kind of see the tail end of my glory. And Moses sees this, and he's transformed. It has this incredible weight. In the New Testament, the, of course, which is written in Greek, this word in Greek for glory is this word doxa. And this word doxa is all throughout the Greek New Testament. And we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says this, this great truth about Jesus. It says that the word, 
speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, again speaking of Jesus, it says that he is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this word glory, the weightiness, the heaviness, the presence of God, seen most clearly as we whittle it down in the New Testament in the person and the work and the face of Jesus Christ. And then we see how Paul even uses it in the letter to, to the Romans. So let's define what Paul means by Romans, by glory in Romans 5, contextually by what he says in Romans, the whole letter and how he uses this word. So in Romans chapter 1, when the letter starts out, it says of all humanity that we have Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So mankind, this is the state of all mankind in his birth. After the fall, we have exchanged the glory, the beauty, the splendor, the oneness that we had with God by worshiping other things. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he says, as a result of this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the radiance, the beauty, the, the satisfaction that mankind can have. We've lost it all that we could have in God because of, of sin. And then in Romans chapter 8, this wonderful chapter that we will get to, Lord willing, sometime this year, Paul picks up on this theme and he's zeroing down in on exactly how this hope of glory applies to us. What does that mean? It's not just a word that we shout out and worship. It's not just this abstract theological concept, but it's this, this thing, this hope, this 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 Christ-likeness that we are longing for. This is what he says in Romans 8, verse 17. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's this sense that we are going to be transformed through our lives here on this earth, what we endure, into Christ-likeness. We will be like him, is what Paul is saying there in verse 17. That's the hope. That's the end state of the Christian, that we will be like him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what's that glory? It's not just some nebulous, ambiguous concept out there. It's this in state of the Christian, it's this final and full transformation that is the place that we are going to. Do you see that? It's, it's where we're going. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 21, he says this, again, this idea of glory, that creation itself will be set free 
from its bondage to corruption. And by the way, when he says creation, we're included in that, right? So it's this place that we're going and the end state of the Christian will be to be set free from the bondage to corruption, verse 21, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. <laughs> verse 30. Now, I'm, now, now we're going to go even deeper here, okay? Because that's, that's where we're going just think about this for a second. Think about, think about just the stages of the Christian life. One is justification. We are dead in our sins. Now, you guys are mostly, we read left to right. So let me come, this, let me come over here and go this way, okay? I always have to flip it in my mind. One is the, the beginning of the Christian life is we're dead in our sins. And God, by his miraculous grace, makes us alive, gives us the gift of faith, by which we see Jesus, and in that moment we are justified, we're adopted, we're converted, we're saved, we're born again. We're justified. That's in a moment. And then the rest of the Christian life is sanctification. We're growing, we're becoming more like Christ, we're fighting the good fight of faith, we're leaning forward, we're doing life together, we're confessing sin, we're growing, we're becoming more and more Christ-like, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And then the end of the Christian life is glorification. So justification, sanctification, glorification. We're somewhere here, those of us that are trusting in Christ right now, we're in the middle. And what Paul is saying is this is where we're going, to this place of glory, when we will be free. But no, 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 it's going to get even better, so hold, hold it for just a second. Let's go to verse 30 of Romans 8. That's where we're going, the hope of glory when I will be finally free of all of these things that rage in my heart against Christ's lordship in my life still. I'll be finally free of that. We're going there, and this is what Paul says about the place that we're going. Going. Future. What's the grammatical term? Gerund or what? I don't even know. I-N-G. We're going there. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, <laughs> he also called, past tense, predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense, and those whom he called, past tense, he also justified, past tense. I'm tracking up to this point because I understand that God's predestining grace is in eternity past. He's called me. The gospel came to me. That happened in time, in the past. He justified me. That's in the past. And those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Not, and those whom he justified, he will someday, hopefully, if you play your cards right, if you do your thing, you will maybe be glorified. No, he says, those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Now, friends, the implications for the Christian life are enormous. That means that this hope of glory, this hope that we have in our final freedom and transformation into Christ-likeness so that we're finally free. I mean, come on, let's just, let's just sit here for a second and dwell on how good that will be. When we're finally free of every contradiction. I mean, come on. 
How good would, how, how good would that really be? Let, 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 let the... <clears throat> let, let that picture of the final state of, the, of your life, if you're trusting in Christ, be a kind of magnet that motivates you to go towards it. Think about that. When there will be no more, like, ulterior motives in your heart. There will be no more conversations that you need to follow back up with and repent. Uh, there will be no more things that you can look at that can cause you to stumble. There will be no more disputable things. There will be no more of that. There will be none. There will be no more moments of rash anger. There will be no more spirals down into the, the hole and decadence of lust. There will be no more jealousy. There will be no more covetousness. There will be no more of that. Come on, see that. Dwell on that. Think about it and let it be like a magnet that pulls us Christward. And that's what Paul is trying to motivate us with here. He's trying to tell us that this is the end state. And then what he says in verse 30 of Romans 8 is this is certain. It's sure. It's etched in stone if you're in Christ. It's going to happen. You You are on an unchangeable course of God's transformation in your life. So then, Christian, why swim against the tide? Let's give ourselves to what God has said will happen in our lives. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, he will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ. And again, see, don't we have this tension here? Some of us need to be encouraged by that. And some of us are tempted to be falsely assured by that. Thinking that we can just kind of, well, you know, this is true. I've already been glorified. So I'm just going to chill. If this causes you to not strive and to just think that you can stay in disobedience, you don't get it. That this is so convicting and encouraging all at the same time. Do you see that, that dual thing that it should be playing on our hearts? And how does this help us? I end with this. How does this help us go after God? Uh, Don Whitney, this professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, really helpful writer, has written a book called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. And he was dwelling on this idea that we, we can rejoice, we can glory in the fact that our glorification is certain if we're trusting in Christ, and that can produce hope in us, and that hope is, is actually a certainty that should empower us to fight sin and to, to lean into God together with other people. He, he gave this really helpful picture to me, and he said, imagine a young boy that's just starting out playing the violin, and he wants to become a great violinist. And he's struggling playing the violin. And I mean, I'm not a musical person, but you know that like if you bought your kid a drum set or any instrument, trumpet or trombone or something like that, a kid that can't play an instrument real good, that can be tough to listen to, right? Can it? We've got a few music people down here. It's like, ugh. Um, And this kid is stumbling around trying to learn how to play the violin. Imagine if God pulled back the curtain and came to that kid and gave that kid a picture of 40 years in the future 
when he is a world-class violinist playing in the, I don't know, the most awesomest orchestra in the world. <laughs> I was going to say Boston or Philadelphia or one of these, I don't even know. Imagine that that kid got a picture of what he was going to be 40 years in the future. And then the vision went away and now he's back in his room struggling with his violin. What would that picture do in that child's heart? Would it produce in that kid, oh, well, that's what I'm going to be. I'll just go watch cartoons. Or rightly understood, would that vision produce in that kid, that's who I am going to be. That's what is etched for certain in God's, God's purpose for me. So I'm going to get to it and I'm going to go and I'm going to practice. I'm going to give myself to this. And I'm going to spend my life becoming who God has said I already am in Christ. Friends, no analogy is perfect, but that's how this truth should land on our hearts. So how does this, how does this, how does this, how does this land in our lives? One, it tells us just that our assurance is, is objective. It's not subjective. It's in Christ. We are a culture dominated by feelings. I've got the feels, right? We need to detox from our subjective moodiness and look at Christ who gives us peace, access, and guarantees the hope of the glory of God. And how do we do this? We do this because the Spirit indwells us, the Word illuminates us, and we live in community where we can encourage one another. We cannot become who God has intended us to become without these means of grace that he's given us. And yet, and yet, and yet, we will all still limp into glory. But that glory is certain for the Christian. As Travis said earlier in our service, you actually have to receive this. God has to work something in you. He, he has to give you the ability for you to turn and trust. Is that, is that you today? Did you come in not with that thought, with that understanding of grace? I, I pray right now that God, by his grace, would give it to you. If you're hearing this, if it's making sense to you, and you previously did not see this and believe this, I think that's very strong evidence that God is giving you the very thing that he requires of you, which is faith. So turn and trust in him and let this be true in your life. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that he's removed his wrath, that he put it on his son, that Jesus took care of it and rose again in victory so that you can have peace and access and hope of the glory of God. And Christian, struggling with some besetting sin, struggling with some external battle without this causing you to go down to your knees, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> help us with these truths. Help me with this truth. Detox us from our subjective feelings and reorient us onto the objective truth of the gospel 
that through Jesus Christ we have peace with you. That it brings us into this place where we stand and that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Lord, do this, I pray, for our good, for our sanctification, for our satisfaction in you. And may this truth become so clear to any unbelievers in this room, but they cannot leave this room without trusting in you, without considering you, without exercising the faith that I'm pleading with you to give to them, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, even now. Lord, take this word and do your work with it in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.